The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're looking at architecture, and specifically the 16th Venice Biennale for Architecture, which opened last week. As ever, it's staged in the Giardini, the gardens at the eastern end of Venice, in the Arsenale, the great shipyards of the Republic of Venice, and throughout the city. The international architecture exhibition, called Free Space, is curated by Yvonne Farrell and Shelley McNamara of the Irish practice Grafton Architects, and includes about 100 participants across the main exhibition and two further special sections. Then there are 63 national presentations and the so-called collateral shows dotted throughout Venice. Later in the podcast, I'll be discussing an exhibition at the Biennale relating to the late British architects Alison and Peter Smithson's Robin Hood Gardens, a social housing estate in East London, which has generated some controversy. But first, I'm joined by Edwin Hethcote, architecture critic at the Financial Times, to discuss the Biennale as a whole. Edwin, this is an, this is an art podcast, and I imagine that more of our listeners would probably have been to the art Biennale rather than the architecture Biennale. Um, the art Biennale has has come to be associated not just with art, but with a kind of 1% super yacht kind of culture as well. The architecture always seems to be much more about ideas and architecture and, and there's less of the kind of conspicuous consumption going on. Is that is that the case? That's exactly the case. Uh, the architecture Biennale is, is really always much more about ideas and it's about architects and the architectural community, for want of a better word, meeting. So whereas the, uh, the art Biennale really is a, a kind of glamorous thing, it's much more about the parties and the social uh, scene, the architecture is still, is, the architecture Biennale is still a kind of platform for ideas, activism to some extent, and, and to understand what's going on in the world, taking the temperature. One of the things about the Art Biennale that's its kind of core strengths is that, that you've got this sort of incongruity between contemporary art and Venetian architecture and historic architecture. So um, obviously, because so much of the importance of Venice is based on its architecture, what's that connection like between the city and the Biennale itself? And I suppose over history, how has that that relationship been managed it's an interesting question, and I think it's quite difficult to answer because Venice, of all cities, is the city that can't build anymore. It's a city that's absolutely stuck in 1750 or, or whatever the date might be. So it's a kind of super ironic place to have a, 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 a celebration of contemporary architecture. Um, and I, I think, in a way, that, that brings a sense of cultural perspective that, you know, we are uh, very much mortal uh, and our, what we create is mortal. But at the same time, architecture has a capacity to last, to to make a space that, that's going to be used for centuries or millennia. So it's a, it's a strange uh, uh, mix of the hyper-contemporary and the sort of rather elegaic sadness that goes with it. One of the most interesting things about having the Biennale where it is in Venice is it gives you the sense of perspective. So I think the... Uh, uh, there is a sense of, of kind of powerlessness, that, you know, how little architecture can achieve. Uh, but also it, the awareness of history is important because architecture can get caught up in its, uh, in its you know, for want of a better phrase, fashionability for it, it, and the kind of the constant fetishization of the contemporary. And Venice drags that back into a kind of reality. And, and the roots of the, uh, the, the Biennale, the earliest shows, were very much about the past and the presence of the past and how that continues to influence the contemporary. Now, in, in the 
in the new international show, Free Space, there's actually a clear intention from the curators to contain the context and atmosphere of Venice within that exhibition. Do, do they succeed? Is there a sort of feeling of Venice within within that international show? What they've done very well, what Grafton have done very well this year, is to uh, strip back uh, the buildings that the exhibits are in. So there is very much an awareness of the original historic structures and of the kind of the the scale, the beauty, the decay of those structures. They've opened up the windows, the the exhibitions are much more open than they usually usually there's a there's a big degree of compartmentation as there is in the art biennale. They've really stripped a lot of that out. So you get these incredible vistas and perspectives. Uh, so I think yes there isn't there is much more of an awareness of the of the existing fabric. Um, but that's probably where the context ends. So the actual show itself is not so much of a history this year. It really is much more about identifying a particular uh, trend or a particular type of work that's going on in the world. Now, you've identified a, a sort of dilemma at the heart of the, the architecture biennale, haven't you? Yes. I think every architecture biennale uh, struggles with a kind of dichotomy. Uh, the 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 pull between the one side which wants to display the contemporary, which wants to take the temperature of the contemporary cultural scene, uh, and another which wants to uh, explore a, a more kind of activist political side. Architecture is is stuck in a in a particular place where it's very much enthralled to power. Architects can't build without money, without political power, and so on. Uh, but at the same time, they're gentle liberal types, and they're intellectuals, and they understand the, in a way, the uh, the lack of agency they have over the world's great problems, you know, the refugee crises, uh, famines, climate change, and so on. And there's always this pull between the two that if you go too far towards the, the aestheticization of the object or the fetishization of the appearance of a building, uh, then you'll be criticized by the, the more actively politically engaged half and vice versa. If it's too political, then the show can end up like a, a series of texts or a book on the wall, effectively. And it, it, just, it just loses its impact as, a, as an exhibition. So where does this one sit in that dichotomy then? This one sits towards the aestheticization of the object. So this one very much sits in uh, a, a tradition of architecture as the creation of beautiful places and architects' contribution to culture as a kind of beneficence, as, as giving something free to the public. The, architect, the, the, the theme is free space, by which I think the architects mean what is the benefit we can give to the public realm uh, through architecture? Can there be a kind of positive side effect of building? Now, well, I'm interested by this idea that's expressed in the manifesto for free space, which is quite interesting that they had a manifesto. It wasn't just a sort of opening statement. It's an actual manifesto in which they say that they kind of identify generosity in each project. What do you think they mean by that? What they mean by generosity is that even if you're building uh, a private piece of architecture there can be a, a beneficial side effect for the city whether that's something beautiful whether it's the creation or the addition of a, a small piece of public space a seat is there a way in which we can always keep the public in mind when we're building um, you know we have to bear in mind now that whereas 
50 years ago most architecture was pub most architecture was public architecture it was social housing it was uh infrastructure it was um uh, you know stations uh, you know whatever else schools and that's very much not the case now most architecture now is private architecture and the question that that throws up is in a in a sort of socially engaged world what is the role of architecture in the in the bigger public realm in the broader public discourse now that being the case can you then create an exhibition which is a kind of an enjoyable experience and how do they go about doing that you can create a, uh, an enjoyable experience, and I think they have. It, it's, I have to say that even if I disagree with some of the tenets, it's an enjoyable show. It looks good. Uh, the curatorial taste has been has been good. It's a show that's in very good taste, and it's left a little to the National Pavilions this year to explore the more uh, political, socially engaged themes. But it works quite well. It's just there is this niggling sense that... Uh, this is architects slightly showing off to each other. It's rather homogenous. There's a kind of beigeness to the whole thing. Um, and it, it presents, I think, probably a rather uh, cosmeticized version of architecture of the world. It doesn't underline the struggles, you know, how difficult it is to build, the, um, the, you know, the, the political impotence of architects, the kind of the, the major political, social, you know, uh, uh, refugee crises going on at the moment, the Trump era. None of that really, uh, none of that really comes out. An interesting point you made in your review was that it largely, it's largely not a Starchitect show. There are lots of, lots of architects who are sort of well-established figures, but not necessarily the sort of household name end of architecture. Um, how deliberate was that, do you think, on the part of the, uh, the curators? And, and, and is it an effective strategy? I'm sure it was deliberate, but I think it's also a generational thing. So there was a generation of architects, um, you know, now they're, they're kind of, they're called the star architects, but we could say uh, uh, Norman Foster, Richard Rogers, Frank Geary, um, the, the usual names. And they, uh, they are an older generation. And, uh, you know, Grafton are, for want of a, a, a less kind phrase, middle-aged, you know, like a lot of us are now. And, uh, <laughs> and they, uh, they've taken their generation and, the, and maybe half a generation younger than them. So it's, it's just kind of early mid-career architects. You know, there was a long run of, of Biennales where the architects dominated and the architecture itself, the culture of architecture was dominated by the icon by uh, architecture as a recognisable device, almost a kind of branding logo. And that is clearly very much out of fashion now. That's, that's reached its peak and is, is pretty much forgotten. It's looked back on as a rather embarrassing episode in, in architectural history. And, and here, you know, you see much more about context, about uh, a little bit about the history, about the, the, the city, you know, this, this idea of generosity that you mentioned. It's really much more about what a, what a building can contribute uh, and, and the spatial experiences inside than it is about as architecture, as branding or logo. Now, if the main show is uh, considered but a little beige, is there colour elsewhere in the Biennale? There is. The national pavilions are, are the usual kind of eclectic uh, mix, um, you know, there are some very, I mean, fascinating entries as ever. Some of them are a bit too wordy, a bit too text-based. The Americans have been very ambitious with a very socially engaged uh, pavilion this year, exploring everything from uh, the water ecologies on the borders of the US and Mexico to uh, to immigration. 
the, the lived experience of um, immigration rather than architecture for immigration. Um, and there was the Argentinian pavilion was, I thought, a visually absolutely astonishing piece. Of, it was a terrarium, a very long glass terrarium with pampas grasses in it and a, star, and a sky with stormy clouds gathering above. I mean, so there were some real, uh, um, uh, what would you call them? But, you know, it's visually striking pieces. Um, but it's probably not the impression you come away with. You come away with the impression of wooden models of concrete buildings. That's interesting. Now, I was struck by that these days it seems like there's always a pavilion that's left empty, and that's the case in in this year with the British pavilion in in which the roof plays a role. Can you tell me more about that? The British pavilion, I think, is a very particular case this year. It was curated by uh, Caruso Sinjin Architects and Marcus Taylor, the artist. Uh, So it's a little bit of a crossover between the... It's where where the architecture biennale touches the art biennale in a way. But it's clearly a very political... Um, uh, moment they're looking at the, 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 it's called island and it's a you could argue that it's a it's a straight metaphor for Brexit you know what happens to Britain as it floats off onto the into the water uh, after after it leaves Europe um, it's a scaffolded platform uh, above the, the pavilion with the pavilion itself left empty with the traces of the of the, uh, the Barlow show from the last uh, Biennale. So it's a rather sad, um, rather empty gesture, uh, but its meaning lies precisely in its emptiness. Now, there, like the Art Biennale, there are the collateral events, which are these. So I don't know. I've never known why they call it that, but the, but the other events, which are the sort of not official as such, but organised by a number of different uh, foundations and individual. What stood out amongst those uh, collateral events? Well, there's the uh, the Catalan Pavilion, which is uh, an interesting idea in itself. I think the one that, that garnered the most um, uh, the most attention was the Holy See, the Vatican entered for the first time on the island of um, San Giorgio Maggiore in the the Chini Gardens. Uh, And that was the Vatican commissioning a a series of chapels, small chapels from well-known and less well-known global architects. And it's a lovely experience, although it's a little, uh, it it seemed to me, uh, almost trying too hard to be poetic. So it's another one of these things that really somehow seems to miss the big questions in, in contemporary culture. But at the same time, it's a lovely walk in a wooded garden, you know. (laughs) Now, in a moment, I'm going to be talking to Christopher Turner about the Robin Hood Gardens exhibition. You saw that as well. What did you make of the debate that it's instigated? You know, does it does that debate feel sort of palpable within the within the actual um, exhibition itself? The debate feels very relevant, and I think, you know, against the background of the Grenfell Tower uh, inquiry, which is going on at the moment, um, I think the debate is the exhibit. So I think, in a way, the exhibit is is there precisely to provoke questions about social housing, about modern architecture, about its failures, about the power of the artefact, and the fact that it's been you know, widely uh, both denigrated, praised, and has garnered an awful lot of press attention is is precisely its purpose. Um, you know, the, the, certainly you can criticise it for fetishising a certain moment in social housing but then again the, the museum has also been um the vla has also been criticized for uh not saving the social housing block not saving robin hood gardens but that's a kind of absurd uh, criticism i mean it's not a museum it's not a museum's position to 
um, you know, to become a kind of social housing landlord. You know, rather it's to it's to provoke a discourse about the meaning of artifacts and the meaning of, of architecture in culture. And that's, it, it, it couldn't have done it any better, even if actually the exhibit itself is a, a little bit underwhelming, this kind of scaffold of, of pretty rough concrete on the, on the Venetian waterfront. It almost melts into the, uh, the dockside kind of industrial infrastructure. Edwin, thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. The Venice Biennale of Architecture is on until the 25th of November. The Biennale exhibition that has generated the most debate, in the UK at least, is Robin Hood Gardens, A Ruin in Reverse. It features a section from Robin Hood Gardens, a now part-demolished brutalist social housing estate in East London, built in the 1970s by Alison and Peter Smithson, the enormously influential architectural pairing. The exhibition is staged by the Victoria and Albert Museum, who acquired a three-storey section of the building last year. The show's generated a controversy in relation to so-called art-washing, defined by the academic Stephen Pritchard as how art is used as a gloss for dispossession, displacement and ultimately social cleansing. Christopher Turner, the Keeper of Design, Architecture and Digital at the V&A, co-curated the exhibition and joins me now. Christopher, could we begin by establishing what Robin Hood Gardens is, or was, and who the Smithsons are? Robin Hood Gardens is a large, brutalist council estate in East London, in Poplar. And it was built by the Smithsons and completed in 1972. The Smithsons were the most distinguished architects of their generation, and they also had an international reputation as the founders and uh, of brutalism. Brutalism has quite a complex cultural identity in many ways. It was connected to the independent group, and I think we ought to sort of unpack that a little bit, because, for instance, Rainer Bannum, who was a key member of the independent group alongside Richard Hamilton and the Smithsons, he, was, he, he sort of theorised this idea of the new brutalism, didn't he? Yes, he described it as an ethic rather than an aesthetic. And it wasn't about beauty. It was about rugged authenticity. And you're right, they were friends with the independent group. They used to go on tours of the East End with Paolozzi and Nigel Henderson, looking at the vibrant street culture that they saw there. And they wanted to incorporate that life of the city into their building. And they did this with streets in the sky. You know, they were very interested in in the street, how children played in the street, how the street was a kind of civic place in the city. And they sought to kind of bring that life into their building with these streets in the sky. They imagined these as places where, which would foster community and neighbourly interaction. They spoke about two mothers passing with prams. They designed the width so that that was possible. And they would stop for a casual conversation. They imagined eddies around the front doors of the building uh, of of people's um, apartments where they would also have these conversations. That's right. They were, they were, so they were designed as a social space, weren't they? And, and in fact, um, one of the interesting facts about it I read was that the kitchens faced the garden. So there's this great sort of mound garden that was made from the rubble of previous buildings in the middle and the kitchens looked over them so mothers could watch their children playing and also, you know, be... Uh, in sight of green space, as it were, even, even despite the fact that this is a big concrete building. Yeah, it's very generous in its plan. Peter Smithson described it as split open like a kipper. And in the middle was this central park, you know, hence the name Robin Hood Gardens. And it was dominated by a two-storey mound, which was reminiscent of Silbury Hill and designed to discourage ball games. Um, they spoke about it as a stress-free zone. Mothers could watch from their kitchen their children playing on this slope. 
And it was very quiet. You know, Robin Hood Gardens is surrounded on all sides by major roads. You know, the Blackwall Tunnel's right there. And they wanted to create this moment of, of, of quiet in the city. Now, one of the things about the building is that it, in in retrospect, is being perceived as a failure. To what extent did it meet those utopian aims at any point in its, in its existence? Um, the Smithsons describe Robin Hood Gardens as an example of a new mode of living in the city. They set quite high expectations for it. They were utopian, but they were interested in practical built utopia rather than a theoretical one. Um, and Robin Hood Gardens, you know, its fortunes changed pretty much immediately after it was built. In 1972, the docks had already closed and moved upriver to Tilbury. Um, the area was depressed as a result. Um, it was very economically challenged. Two-thirds of the households, their income would have been dependent on dock work. Um, so it was already it was already kind of challenged from the start. Even before it was built, Alison Smithson was complaining about vandalism and worrying that people wouldn't protect their little rented bit of the socialist democratic dream. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, Peter Smithson, there's a sort of, I find it quite a troubling quote that, where he talks about how people aren't exercising what he calls minor arts of occupation, where he sort of, where he's, you know, flower pots outside uh, front doors and painted doors and that kind of thing. And he talks about how he was, sort of, he talks about, I guess, his dismay at, at the fact that people had shat in the lift. You know, there's a sense in which they themselves were troubled by what was happening to the building they created. Yeah, they wanted people to have as much respect for the city and the, the wider urban landscape as they did for their homes. And that was their their challenge. Um, it's true that from the start, you know, it was beset by by such problems that you describe and they did <laughs> they did vow to never incorporate lifts in their buildings again, probably as a result of the, the things you talk about. Um, but the arguments about modernist design and crime um, really kicked off in the 1980s and they preceded and justified the right to buy scheme. And I think that, you know, that, that, that's important to point. I think the, the right to buy scheme and the, the lack of maintenance that these council estates had was very key um, to their lack of success. Neve Brown, who was the, the architect of Alexandra Road, said that council estates should come with an endowment for their maintenance. You know, Robin Hood Gardens was, was very badly maintained. That's right. It's been defined as an architectural problem when actually its defenders and I would be one of them would say that actually this is these are social problems writ large. I mean, it's true that in um, uh, the building was finished in 1972, but seven years later, Thatcher's conservative government came into power in the UK. And that was actively antagonistic to social housing, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, 50% of social housing was sold off under the right to buy scheme. And that wasn't replaced. You know, that devastated social housing in, in this country. When people talk about the success or failure of Robin Hood Gardens, that's very much open to dispute. You know, architects like Richard Rogers have compared it to a Nash Terrace. He thinks it's a great success. Zaha Hadid um, said it was her favourite building from one of the most important eras of architecture in the United Kingdom. You know, so it's easy to blame the architect for wider socio-political problems. And the architect must take some responsibility. But I think um, to blame them entirely for designing in crime into their buildings is a step too far. So tell me about the, the current status of Robin Hood Gardens. There were attempts to list the buildings, but they failed and demolition began. Is it now entirely demolished or is there still some standing elements? Um, the campaign to save it started in 2008, but it 
didn't get listing, um, unlike Park Hill in Sheffield, which is 10 years before, but a kind of similar council estate. Um, and after it was denied listing, there were appeals. Uh, but English Heritage said that it was not fit for purpose. And eventually, um, the Secretary of State um, said that, uh, you know, the, the, the appeal was revoked. And the building was uh, demolished at the beginning of last year. One block is still standing, but one is completely gone. And obviously, the V&A, when they collected a piece of Robin Hood Gardens, have taken uh, pieces from the building that has been demolished. It's not one person's flat. Some of the pictures on the internet that are circulating are a bit deceptive. It's not a cake slice out of the building. We um, took all the best pieces from across the facade so that we can reassemble an uh, an abstraction, a composite portrait of the Smithson's original vision. And we've taken three stories, including a street in the sky, two facades, and the interior fittings of two entire Maisonette apartments. And we hope that they will be reassembled one day at one of the museum sites in Stratford. So can you set the context for that kind of collecting? Because the fact is that this isn't, this isn't an isolated example. This, this, this fits in with a long history of acquisitions at the v Yeah. Um, this isn't the first thing the v salvaged. We've got lots of large-scale architectural fragments, not only casts of things like Bologna Cathedral, but things that have been saved from demolition sites. We've got Paul Pinder's, the facade of Paul Pinder's house, which is a large, you know, a two-story piece um, that was salvaged um, from a site near Liverpool Street Station when that was expanded. We've got the Norfolk Music Room, which was saved from a house in St. James. We've got the Oak Room uh, that Charles Rennie McIntosh built in Glasgow that's about to go on show in V&A Dundee. So we're trying to continue that tradition. I think it's very important that we have an example, such an important example of brutalism in the collection. And we are the national collection of architecture. So tell me about what's in Venice then. It's a sort of fragment of, of that acquisition Mm. it's not actually the acquisition itself once something enters the collection we have to treat it with kid gloves so that's in storage and that will be uh, conserved the fragment in venice is a supplementary piece of the building it is of a similar scale but it's only one facade and we've assembled it on a scaffold so that people can walk up and experience the street in the sky firsthand we wanted to start unpacking the ideas that robin hood gardens throws up and start the debate about not only its vision and its fate, but also its legacy. What can we learn from Robin Hood Gardens and take forward uh, as we look at the housing crisis and try and come up with innovative solutions to the housing crisis? So tell me about the housing crisis then. What what do you mean by that? Um, Obviously, we're under intense pressure, especially with social housing. In Tower Hamlets alone, there are 20,000 people on the social housing waiting lists. Something has to be done. Um, In the 1960s, you know, they addressed these problems very ambitiously. How can we salvage with the fragments some of that visionary thinking and look at ways in which we can uh, bring more housing to areas like Tower Hamlets? Um, Robin Hood Gardens is a kind of important example of what's happening across London. 50 estates are threatened with similar uh, regeneration. That's some 30,000 homes. And whilst housing increases tenfold, the social housing, um, the net drop has been 8,000. So, you know, that's a real challenge. You know, Tower Hamlets have promised that the amount of social housing 
in Blackwall Reach, which is what this 300 million development will be called, will increase, uh, will, will double. And, you know, it's important that campaigners and protesters um, hold them to account on that. So the, there is a debate that has begun since the exhibition uh, in Venice and, and indeed since the acquisition by the V&A of this, of this section about what's, what, what is termed art washing, which is this idea of a sort of a, a gentrification at the expense of the kind of social values that, that were originally at the heart of these, um, at the heart of these developments and, and a kind of form of social cleansing, essentially. How do you respond to the, to the criticisms of the presence of this section from Robin Hood Gardens at the Architecture Biennale? Well, there are two things there. First of all, there's the criticism of social cleansing. That's an important one. And there have been instances in East London, for example, at Balfron Tower, where a community has been displaced and where artists have been used to put lipstick on the griller. Um, you know, the, the V&A, when we took a fragment of Robin Hood Gardens, you know, there was nothing more to be done. We went in before the bulldozers to negotiate taking a piece for future generations. And I think that's important. And we also intend through that object to look at these wider debates. You know, the, the protests are part of that debate. And I think that it's important that a museum provides a forum for those conversations. It's inappropriate for a museum to take partisan political positions. As far as Venice goes, um, Venice is the most important um, forum for discussions of architecture and urbanism. And I think the V&A has a privilege of being treated almost like a country there. We get a pavilion. And we wanted to have these important debates there. You know, there's no reason why Venice, just because it's in, uh, in Italy, should somehow be superficial. These issues are very important to Venetians. Um, you know, social housing is a big problem in Venice itself. Um, there's one resident for every 140 tourists in Venice, and there are a lot of strains on, the, the, on, on housing through things like Airbnb. There's a tradition of squatting in Venice. There are also um, social housing estates in Venice that directly relate to the Smithsons. Gino Varley has um, got a, a beautiful development on Geodeca that owes, its, owes a lot to the Smithsons. He was also a, a member of Team 10. Um, what, what was Team 10? Team 10 was the the Smithson's splinter group away from Le, Le Corbusier's Congress of um, Modern Architecture. They rebelled against his high modernism and wanted to create a modernism that was more attuned to the specificity of the city, to the context of the city, a more, more tailored modernism. Right. So... What do you include in the exhibition then beyond the facade? Because the, the debate about about the exhibition is absolutely about the presence of the facade. How, where do you go from there? We look at the Smithson's original vision. We look at the context of its um, raising. And we also look forward to the future of social housing. The fragment is one part of the exhibition. It sort of brackets it. Um, at the beginning, we look at the construction, the Robin Hood Gardens in all its, in all its hope. Um, and the fragment is intended to kind of echo the construction. We've called our exhibition Robin Hood Gardens a ruin in reverse because it's not the first time that Robin Hood Gardens has appeared in Venice. The Smithsons actually in 1976 curated an exhibition of their work called Sticks and Stones in which a large-scale construction photograph of Robin Hood Gardens featured. And they photographed themselves sitting on a bench that was an, an enlargement of one of the concrete fins that articulate the facade of Robin Hood Gardens. And they're shown there contemplating it 
in all its promise. And in the catalogue, they say that a building under construction is like a ruin in reverse. And now that Robin Hood Gardens has become a real ruin, we wanted to bring it back to Venice and see what we could learn from it. I suppose the big debate about these things is that it's, it's, it's very easy when talking about architecture to not talk about people, which is, after all, what was right at the heart of the Smithson's vision. Um, one of the really interesting ways you've explored that is by commissioning Doho Su, the Korean artist, to make a, a, a work in response to Robin Hood Gardens. Can you tell me more about that? Um, Doho Su is a Korean artist who explores in his work issues of home, memory and displacement. He'd never heard of Robin Hood Gardens, but he was absolutely the right person to commission to explore these themes as they relate to the building. Alongside the fragment, we wanted to show what life was like inside the building. It's a kind of archive and document of apartments before they've gone forever. And they help us as we interpret our museum object um, later. Doho scanned four apartments uh, using photogrammetry and he also used time-lapse photography and, and, and drone footage to create this amazing panoramic portrait of the building. The camera seems to cut vertically and horizontally through the flats and along the walkways of the buildings in, in constant movement. And he worked very closely with residents to do that who opened up their doors to him and they feature in this in the film. One of the curious aspects of this is that there are conflicting reports about what the residents' experience in Robin Hood Garden was like. Um, it became enormously, almost deliberately neglected towards the end as it headed towards de demolition, which made lives of people living there extremely difficult. But also there are different responses from when people first moved in, when people were living there in its, in its most deprived moments, when, there was, when the maintenance really went out the window. So did you get a sense of just what it was like to live there and how happy people were to be living in these buildings? Um, interestingly, they had a survey before the decision was made to demolish it and it was commissioned by the council, and 80% of residents said that they favoured demolition and being rehoused. But later on, as the campaign to save the building um, took force, there was another alternative survey that was conducted by one of the residents, and they found that 90% favoured refurbishment. Um, for the council, refurbishment would have cost about 77000 a flat, and the site is just too valuable now to justify such low density and yields. You know, we spoke about how the docks closed. Um, Margaret Thatcher's enterprise zone rose up in its place. Um, and you can see the corporate skyscrapers looming over Robin Hood Gardens. You know, it's a, it's, it's a very valuable piece of real estate. And the council, with their housing pressures, um, are trying to find solutions. Right. I mean, there's, there's actually a really amazing view where if you go to one side and you see through the demolished building, you can actually see Canary Wharf in the distance. So it's, it's an incredibly metaphoric image, isn't it? I, yeah, I think it, I think it is. The Smithsons thought that there might be a new leisure park where the docks were, and they imagined it as a new Venice in London. But instead, we got this international banking zone. And that says everything about what we're talking about. Christopher, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. You can see Robin Hood Gardens, a ruin in reverse, in the Arsenale in Venice until the 25th of November.
You can read the director of the V&A, Tristram Hunt's comment on the debate online at theartnewspaper.com and in the June print edition of the Art Newspaper, which is hot off the press. You can read Christopher Turner's blogs on Robin Hood Gardens at the V&A's website, vam.ac.uk. And there's a very interesting paper on Robin Hood Gardens in the context of art washing and neoliberalism by Ollie Mould, a lecturer in human geography at Royal Holloway, University of London, at antipodefoundation.org. And that's it for this week. You can tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at The Art Newspaper and see our Instagram posts at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. Music.